The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we get to speak with best-selling author Mary Roach. You may have heard of her from books such as Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, and Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. Now we hear about her latest topic, weaving together the deadly serious and the scientifically silly, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. I'm here with Mary Roach, the legendary author of Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void, and other one-word titles followed by colons. Her writing has appeared in Outside, Wired, National Geographic, and The New York Times Magazine, among others. Mary is the reason I am planning to donate my body to science. And we're here this week to talk about her latest book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Mary, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me here. So I wanted to ask first, how did you get into writing about war? In some of your other books, I can see kind of a logical progression. A book about (laughs) cadavers leads pretty logically to the book Spook about the afterlife. I could see cadavers leading to interesting questions about sex, and then you write bonk. Um, And of course, then you wonder if you can have sex in space, and you look at space. And then Space Food leads to the book Gulp about the alimentary canal. But where did war come from? War came from a place you wouldn't necessarily imagine. I was reporting a story for the food issue of Smithsonian Magazine in India where they grow uh, Nagaland, the state of Nagaland, where they grow the boot jolokia, the hottest chili pepper in the world, although that title is contested these days. Anyway, while I was there, I was told that the Indian Defense Ministry had weaponized the chili pepper. So I needed to report on that. And the lab was not that far away. It was in the neighboring state of Assam. So I made my way over to the science arm of the Indian Defense Ministry where they worked on this um, exploding chili pepper bomb. It was a, one of those, essentially a, like a pepper spray, only a powder, a sustainably locally grown non-lethal weapon. And so... <laughs> but sustainable and local, sustainable, was it yeah, organic? I, Exactly. Uh, so, well, you know, it's the food issue. So um, anytime you can work that angle in, they love it. So while I was there, uh, the pepper, uh, the pepper bomb was kind of a flop, because it was prone to mildew in the warehouses. So they never I don't think they ever deployed their chili pepper weapon. But while I was there, I just really liked these scientists. And they were working on this is what got me going a leech repellent, a leech repellent. I don't know. That kind of thing just makes me sit up and go, oh, I certainly wish I had one. Leech repellent. You know, I guess if you're, it's monsoon season and you're schlepping around in uh, wet terrain as a soldier, you would want a leech repellent. Anyway, that planted the seed. And then I went home. And around that time, I heard from a um, researcher no, sorry, not a researcher, a former army, a retired army pathologist who was who had read Stiff. And I, w- I emailed him and said, I don't know, I'm thinking about military science. What do you think? Is it impossible? Would the access just be uh, too much of a hurdle? 
And he was very encouraging. He's like, no, you should do this book. I can put you in touch with people at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, the, the, you know, the big morgue in Dover. And that sounded kind of amazing. Uh, so that happened. And I went there and he introduced me to people and they introduced me to people. And that's how it got rolling. I'm really impressed by that. I know many times scientists can actually be relatively open about what they do, even when what they do involves, you know, human cadavers. Uh, but the military does have a reputation for being secretive. And in this case, you were actually dealing with some fairly personal surgeries and classified information. How did you end up getting on um, a nuclear submarine in an undisclosed <laughs> location? <laughs> that took a year and a half. Well, maybe a year and three months. That took a long time. Uh, and I guess because I don't have clearance. So there were portions of the submarine I couldn't get onto. It was a ballistic missile submarine. So it's essentially a roving nuclear arsenal out in the Atlantic that stays down for months at a time and is silent and it basically stays hidden so that, uh, no one else can take out our arsenal first in that whole crazy, you know, mutual assured destruction scenario. Uh, it, so that, uh, that took a little doing and it, it came about because, um, this, the head of research at the Naval, Med, uh, Naval Medical Submarine Research Laboratory in Groton, Connecticut, had read one of my books and, and he was due to retire in a year and he said, you know, the Navy is always, we, we, we tend to keep outsiders away. We turn our wagons in a circle and we don't talk. And he said, you know, we do really good work here at this laboratory and I'm proud of it and people should be proud of it. And I think we should talk about it. And I'm retiring in a year, so I don't care if they get mad at me. So he was this advocate for getting me on board the submarine. And uh, it eventually had part of it was logistics because th those subs are out for months at a time. They're powered by a nuclear reactor, so they don't need to go refuel. They can stay down essentially as long as the food on board holds out. Uh, and I wasn't going to go out for months on end. So uh, the way I got on board, there were some prospective commanding officers who were doing a practical exam where they would sort of take over the submarine and do you go through all different kinds of scenarios are thrown at them. So I they uh, they went out, you know, it was a, we went out, I went out with them about 10 hours out from Kings Bay, Georgia, the submarine popped up. They put sort of a gangplank down between the boat and the sub and we went down in there and uh, for five days while they were doing their stuff. I did my stuff. So it was, um, it worked, it all worked out. Although, it, you know, it was a long time <laughs> in, in I, I thought there was, I had given up. I didn't think it would ever happen. Wow. So you basically got onto a nuclear submarine because you were kind of on a guy's bucket list. Like he's yeah, about to retire. Yeah, yeah. It's like I'm. I'm going to make this happen. There's no reason why this shouldn't happen. And uh, it was th at a certain point. I asked, uh, not him. I asked somebody who who uh, was at Kings Bay. I said, "What all had to happen other than him trying to ha make this happen? Who had to to sign off on it?" And he's like, "Well, the commanding officer of the submarine, the submarine force, the fleet force, uh, the chief of naval operations, and the officer of the secretary of defense." All of those people got involved in saying, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess she can go on board. You know, I'm reporting on, uh, sleep and a, they were, they're shifting to a, a sleep deprivation and, uh, circadian rhythm because the submarine, because it has no 
light. There are no windows. There's no light. You can you can mess with the length of the day, and that's been done. But as it turns out, you can't really mess with the body's desire to be on a 24-hour cycle. So people, uh, the crew who are on this adjusted 18-hour day would get uh, – kind of on top of sleep deprivation, jet lag, and it was bad. And so now they're they're shifting back to a circadian rhythm-friendly watch bill. And I was reporting on that. So, you know, this is this is something good that they're doing. There's no reason for them to uh, not want me on board, but there's it's classified. You know, like you go into the you go into the um the enlisted crew lounge, which is just this haze of vapor smoke <laughs> because vaping is still allowed, those cigarettes are not. So uh, you, but in any way, in this, in the lounge, in the corner, is this computer printer, and it's it's labeled secret printer, like secret printer stuff that comes out of it is secret. You I don't can know that only print secrets on yeah, that printer. Exactly. <laughs> secret printer. I'm like, I want a secret printer. I just you know, there's a there's a part of the ship up on the you know near the control room where they uh, there's a, a chain across it, and it says top secret, keep out. You know, it's like girls only. You know, boys only. No girls allowed. It's just as I mean, secret is an official classification, security classification, you know, secret, top secret. But to me, it just is so spy versus spy. And it's like, secret, really? What happens if I go in here? What are you going to do? <laughs> it all sounds very intrepid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty, uh, pretty uh, different. So were there any areas of the science of war that you ended up staying away from either because they were top secret or you know, because you felt they were inappropriate? There were lots of things I had planned to, to cover in this book and, and didn't for one reason or another. Uh, I had planned to have a chapter, How Not to Be Seen, that would have to do with camouflage and various low-tech and high-tech versions of it. But the camouflage laboratory at Natick Labs, which is uh, um, in Natick, uh, Massachusetts, that's ca- that's classified. Nobody there would speak to me. It's classified. Uh, so, which I didn't see that coming. I don't know. Camouflage doesn't seem to me to be the sort of thing you need to be that secretive about, but it was. Um, and I had planned to embed. I was going to go out with the chaplain's corps. Uh, the chaplain and the uh, chaplain's assistant go out with units, whether it's, you know, a route clearance mission looking for IEDs or, um, going into villages and, interacting with people in whatever way they're doing whatever it is that the unit does the chaplain's corps goes along so i thought of them i mean i was going to do a ptsd chapter and i I was interested in um the chaplain's ability to be empathetic as they go through that they take the same risks i thought that was kind of an interesting um interesting approach and that got turned down because it was during the drawdown in afghanistan and they weren't supporting embeds other than daily journalism. And so the US had approved it, but ISAF, the, you know, the coalition group, they turned it down. So I, I wanted to cover that. I wanted to cover, um, medevac care in the air, you know, you know, doing medical procedures on a noisy, vibrating helicopter, that sort of thing. But, but, um, happily, the, there were, there were very few medevacs going on at that time because the, it was just the, the US was training Afghan national soldiers. So they weren't, they weren't really involved uh, in combat. So, um, so those were things, the army blood bank system, I was, I was keen to, there were just a bunch of things I would have done. Could I have uh, embedded? Well, it's, uh, it's too bad because now all I can think of is that probably the camouflage 
uh, system of the army is working on invisibility cloaks and you couldn't get near them. That's, that's what's going on in my head right now. They, 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 yeah, there, there, there are papers on those invis, that invisibility technology where the light kind of bends around, but it's, you know, right now they can do it on a very tiny, like they could make maybe a flea's foot invisible. <laughs> I can't make a whole person, but yeah, the clo- I, that, that I was going to cover that and I was going to cover, you know, just the more basic fabric camouflage that could the, the different patterns and how they do that. But anyway, and I liked the, you know, the how not to be seen, which is the lovely Monty Python. Yes. <laughs> Uh, skit where they get wrong and the guy gets blown up. <laughs> and many of your previous books have that kind of lighthearted Monty Python sort of tone. Yeah. Um, you know, in Stiff, for example, the situations are very serious, but the people are all anonymous and dead. Uh, and in yeah. space, everything is kind of extra funny in space. Yes. But war has some very difficult emotions tied up in it. Yes. In your book, you actually do a really great job walking the line between the silly and the very serious. How did you go about writing that? With great anxiety and trepidation, uh, because, like you said, there are, I mean, it's, it's shifting back and forth in tone, and there's definitely times, moments, and topics where humor is not appropriate. Uh, but then again, you don't want a sort of a lurching, bifurcated tone where you're you're completely abandoning your usual sort of uh happy go lucky mary rochi uh a sometimes kind of flip take on stuff so yeah no it was it it just was you know i i was i knew that the some of the historical chapters shark repellent and the stink paste those were places where you could have a lot of fun um, the OSS correspondence is hilarious. Those, those, those files, those formerly classified files that I had, um, the humor tends to be, or often is at my own expense as a clueless outsider, which I really and truly was, you know, I'd be, you know, like uh, at Aberdeen proving ground where they test weapons and vehicles I at one point was inside um, this new generation of armored personnel carriers because uh, Humvees were a disaster in the Middle East. Um, uh, So they have these vehicles that they're uh, in order to beef them up and make them more protective. They're very stripped down inside. There's no there's no toilet, even though they're long trips. There's no toilet. There's no microwave oven. There's no there is AC. Otherwise, you'd cook. But there's very little in there. And I commented to the person showing me around, oh, but it's great that you have some cup holders. And the, the guy's going, um, those are rifle holders. Well, <laughs> if like, it helps, I would have thought they were cup holders too. <laughs> they like, they kind of look like cup holders. I don't know. So, uh, yeah, so the humor, uh, and I also rely, I have an editor who has a good ear. For, she's a, just a, just a, a couple degrees more sensitive than me to uh, having crossed a line. So she sometimes will just write in the margin, no, <laughs> uh, and suggest taking something out. So, you know, she doesn't do that a lot, but when she does, it's, it's always a good call. So, um, so that helps tremendously to have another set of eyes and ears. And while we're on this, this kind of serious subject, one of the things you spend time on is a penis transplant, which has that ha, penis 
yeah. often it's also very serious. Why did you end up actually choosing the penis to talk about for transplants as opposed to, say, hands or feet or faces? Because it was new, because it, uh, no one had done, well, there was one case in China in 2006, which didn't get a lot of play because it, it didn't, it wasn't successful. They had to remove it in two weeks. So it was brand new for one thing. Uh, and for another, uh, the fact that it was still something they were working out the kinks, well, the kinks, that sounds bad. They were <laughs> working out the procedure. So there was a cadaver lab that I was able to go to. And I've never been able to do that. I, you know, when I worked, wrote stiff, I knew that that was something that was done, but I'd had never, had never been in a lab where surgeons were doing kind of a run through or looking into, in this case, which arteries do we need and veins do we need to hook up to make sure that the transplanted material is going to be properly perfused. There's going to be enough blood feeding these, the tissue because it seems like that might have been what went wrong in the Chinese operation in 2006. So um, that opportunity a- appealed to me because it's something I've never done. And also, you know, readers of st- the, the fans, the fans of stiff are always like, when are you going to do stiff too? When are you going to do another cadaver book? So anytime there's a cadaver project, I'm always, uh, uh, eager to bring that in for the stiff fans. But that, but that was why. Yeah. <laughs> you, you got to appease those cadaver loving masses, man. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people out there are like, wow, when are you going to do, I want you to do another one. The other reason too is that the face transplant had been covered quite a bit as had the first hand transplant. So, um, I'm always looking for something that's new, fresh, not been covered a lot in the media. And one of the subjects that you addressed in that chapter on penises was something I had never thought about before. I think it's hugely important. You talked about the importance of sex education for veterans and their wives. How did you find out about that issue and what's being done about that? Yeah, one, well, the, the surgeon at Walter Reed, he's an andrologist, uh, Rob Dean, and he's the one who, uh, does consultate, you know, he'll re- rebuild, uh, the reproductive organs, the testicles, the, you know, the scrotum, the, that's more his area rather than the urological, the, the penis itself. He's more reproductive stuff. So he does surgery, but he also, uh, counsels men on, um, the, a- you know, the aftermath and on, you know, on fertility. And he's taken it upon himself to talk to veterans groups about sexual difficulties and and to give information and advice because there isn't anyone on staff at Walter Reed to do that. It, it's him and this woman, Christine Delorier, who's a nurse there. And they've, they've been doing it themselves. And they've, they're, they're really passionate about it and frustrated by the um, military's kind of not refusal, but just sort of dancing around this issue. You know, I, 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 it's taxpayer dollars. And there's a sense that I think that that sex is kind of a lifestyle issue, and they they feel adamantly that n- no, it's not. It's important that they walk, but it's also important that they have sex. You know, I mean, I talked to when I was talking to Christine, I said, you know, do you have statistics on the divorce rate for veterans who come back, not just with genital injuries, but you lose two legs or one leg and two hands, and uh, you know, how do you have sex now? And like, what positions work? What sort of equipment and resources are there, you know, that kind of information isn't shared. And I said, so what is the divorce rate? And she goes, divorce rate, try suicide rate. 
you know, it's really important. And, and relationships are shattered over things like that. And there are resources. There's this book, just like really straightforward, fabulous books, like sexual, it's like intimacy and sex. I don't know the exact title. It's in, it's in my book uh, for uh, for wounded veterans and n- not just missing missing limbs and, and pieces, but also the drugs that they're on when they come back and they have these surgeries. They're on painkillers, antidepressants, nerve stabilizers, things that interfere with the ability to get or keep an erection. So there's that. And they just have, they have a lot of questions and no one to turn to. So that should be a resource that's just right there and, and made known. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was really inter- interesting to, it's just not something I had really thought about. And on that depressing note, <laughs> you're listening to Science for the People. And coming up next, we're going to turn to the lighter side with diarrhea, ballistic chickens, and the worst smell on Earth. We'll be back after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. We're talking with Mary Roach, the author of the new book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Mary, you are a great believer in participating fully in the science that you cover. And this time you got placed in a cookbox. Can you talk us through that? Sure, sure, sure. The cookbox is uh, at USIS, which is the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences in uh, outside DC. And it's a place where you can make it as hot and humid as you want. There are treadmills in there and uh, a system where you have a so, something to measure your core temperature. The, the topic of study when I was there was heat injury, and that includes heat stroke, uh, which can be fatal. And this has been, for obvious reasons, a, a, a problem in the last two conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, there's the statistics, something like 14,000 cases over a five-year period like starting in 2005. So they were looking at, by putting people in the cookbox while measuring their core temperature and having them do things that were similar to what one might do deployed in Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, that they were looking for uh, a biomarker or some way to identify people who don't do well in heat. There's a tremendous amount of individual difference in how well you can tolerate heat. And, you know, without... Uh, becoming sick without fainting or getting heat injury or heat stroke. So they were, they were, uh, there were a couple of army ranger instructors, unbelievably fit individuals on the, these two treadmills. And then there's me, not incredibly fit. <laughs> they, the treadmill was uh, at an incline. It was a hundred degrees. And I had a backpack that weighed 30 pounds, which is about a third the weight that someone would actually be carrying. And I lasted seven minutes before I started to overheat. So uh, I'm clearly not the person you want to send out into the into a courtyard in Afghanistan in the middle of the day with a heavy load. Uh, so that's what that's the cookbox. Uh, it's it's 
one of those things that sounds really enticing until you're in like, I mean, as a, a piece of science to report on, but uh, once you're in there, it's pretty, uh, pretty hot. And you mention in the book, actually, very offhandedly, that you were wearing a rectal probe. <laughs> uh, yes, I, yeah, I don't even know what the the verb is. Do you wear it? Do you carry it? Do you what is the ver- <laughs> what is something the, I've never thought of? What the is ver- I know, the term? I kind of I kind of tripped over that when I was writing it. Where wearing? I don't know. Yeah. So and and it was funny. The the these guys these um the, these guys who had just been in these unbelievable wrenching situations in combat uh they were really bummed out about the rectal probe it's like the, the stuff that these guys had told me that they dealt with you know seeing people killed and seeing you know just dealing with this grinding heat and exhaustion and they're really they're really really bummed out about the rectal probe <laughs> that was just kind of funny it's the little it, things yeah, it's the little things exactly yeah well yeah the, the rectal probe is uh you know once it's uh, once it's in there you sort of forget about it unless you put it down because it's tethered to a heavy uh, kind of a, the size and weight of a brick is the computer system. And if you put that on the counter and then walk away, um, it's kind of an awkward and uncomfortable scenario. And so I, I, I did that. I, uh, yeah, I did that. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but at least, you know, it, I didn't yank it off the counter. It, it yanks from the other end. That's probably enough about the rectal probe. Right. <laughs> One of the things I learned in that chapter on the cookbox that was really fascinating to me is how sweat um, is related to blood. Could you yeah. give us a, a little primer on sweat? Because this just blew my mind. Yeah, me too. I, I had no idea. Sweat, uh, your body uses plasma, the, the clear portion of your blood, to make sweat. So when, it, when your uh, core temperature starts to rise out of the comfort range, like, at, like as in not comfort, com- comfortable, but out of the ideal range for the machine that is you. It starts to get too hot. Your body will automatically start to cool you down by shunting blood to your skin. And then the sweat glands, 2.2, I believe, or 2.4 million of them, uh, take the plasma and it's just sort of like vented onto the surface of, of your body. And then the, this hot, this, this heated up, Basically, the heat just goes into the air. It vaporizes it. it so it, your their, your body offloads heat uh, through the, the the sweat glands on so and the sweat evaporates and the heat goes into the air and you you cool down and uh, it's this amazing system. And what's so dangerous about combat in a hot place is that soldiers are usually exerting themselves. They're they're in action. They're carrying a heavy load, and that means that the, your, your, their muscles are demanding that blood as well. So there's this competition for your bodily fluids. That uh, that if it gets extreme, your body starts to shut down things uh, like that are vital, like your digestive system, or you know the or you know sometimes just the not enough blood makes it to the brain, then you faint. So, uh, and, and if it carries on too long and in, and in too extreme a manner, then it, it can be fatal. So, so that's what's going on, this competition in your body for, for precious bodily fluids. I was also very interested in the association you talked about between heat illness and bodybuilding supplements. And yeah, I, I was really amazed. What's going on there? Yeah, bodybuilding supplements whether it's um uh 
pro- just protein or these things that rev the metabolism. You know, if, if the, your, if, you know, the, if, if anything that kind of sp- speeds up the metabolism, you're, it's dehydrating. There's a, there's a lot of these supplements and, and that, that, dehydrate you that, that increase the competition for these fluids and, um, protein, when you get like protein in the system, it's, 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 your body needs to pull moisture into your blood to, to kind of flush it through because it's proteins a little harder on the filtration system, the kidney. So you, uh, it dehydrate, you know, protein, um, it pulls moisture out of your tissues. So that, uh, has a dehydrating effect. So that all exacerbates the situation and, uh, weightlifting, bodybuilding is the number one pastime on, on, ba- well, I don't know, not like anybody's necessarily formally rank them but it's it's a very popular pastime and the supplement companies uh you can just order it online amazon delivers to the major bases so um there's a um a group at usis called champ the consortium for health and military performance that they try to keep on top of these supplements and let people know you know that this is particularly dangerous this one but there's only like ninety thousand of them out there horrible thing they just like all kinds of things thrown in because they're not regulated so so that is uh that's making the situation worse or even just um working out lifting weights in the sun is a bad idea because you there's something called rhabdomyolysis which is if you're overworking a particular muscle it it can start to just break down and then the cells break open and release um it's like myoglobin and potassium so you can get heart arrhythmias you can uh think it's difficult for the body to clear them kidney failure so overworking a muscle when there's not enough um resources in the body none of fluids to go around can create uh can create that and that can be a, again a fatal condition so you know uh bodybuilding in the heat and the sun is a kind of a bad idea. Wow. Well, pivoting a little bit off the the concept of excess protein. In your introduction, you devoted a few very precious pages to ballistic chickens. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> Can you please enlighten us all about these glorious birds? <laughs> yes, absolutely. The chicken gun. I I just love to say chicken gun. Um Chicken is an excellent word. The chicken gun is a heavy artillery piece that fires chickens. Supermarket, thawed out supermarket chickens. No chickens are specifically killed for this. They are already uh, available for purchase in supermarkets. The chicken, uh, the chicken is shot at pieces of jets, like the windscreen canopy, uh, to, to, um, simulate bird strike. You know, plane is flying along, hits a bird, uh, it may, do damage, it may bring the plane down. So, uh, in order to make sure these bits and pieces of a plane or jet can withstand, withstand bird strike, they're tested using the chicken gun, which fires the chickens at the gun. I mean, at the plane. So that is, that is the chicken gun. You would, the chicken is an odd choice in the chickens don't fly and they're denser than a lot of the birds that do hit planes, but they're kind of a worst case scenario. And also, it's more easy. To, you want something standardized for testing, and a chicken is more easily procured. You know, standard chickens. And have any uh, of these, you know, airplanes, helicopters have has anything in them been changed due to the amazing heroic scientific effort of ballistic chickens? 
<laughs> I'm sure that there have been there have been um, pieces of planes that didn't pass muster. I mean, it's a, it's one of those um, what is it ATSM the standard the, the testing and materials standardization. There's th- those those people that come up with these official standards for testing, uh, whether it's latrine deodorizers or airplanes. Uh, there there are standards that need to be met, and I'm sure that the the uh, chicken gun has meant that some things have been um, prevented from making it into the air because they weren't up to snuff with the chicken gun test. And one of the things that I, I loved about this book was that there was the ballistic chickens, but there was also a lot of details about how the military uses sets, movie-like sets, mm-hmm. with actors and leaking submarine stages to train personnel and you actually participated in one of these movie-like scenarios and talked with people who manage the sets. What are the kind of conditions that these, you know, sets are are trying to mimic? The one that I was on, uh, it's a, a group called Strategic Operations, and it's a big studio outside San Diego, pretty close to Camp Pendleton, which is the Marine Corps. <clears throat> and um, the day I was there... They were training a group of uh, future Navy corpsmen. And Navy corpsmen provide medical care for the Marines. The Marines don't have their own medics. Uh, so uh, medical personnel who are going to have to render emergency medical care in a combat scenario, uh, which is challenging because of the fight-or-flight response, which makes you fast and strong but also uh, also kind of dumb like it 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 does not help you with making uh making judgments it doesn't help you with fine motor skills it's great if you're just running away or throwing a rock but it actually doesn't help you at all so the idea is like can you create a stressful uh adrenaline pumping scenario throw these guys in guys and women and uh have them practice what they're doing, uh, what they'll have to do uh, on a movie set where nobody's actually trying to kill you, and they're very they're they're very realistic, hyper realistic. In fact, trademark term by strategic operations. And when they say hyper realistic, they mean there's a pyrotechnics guy setting off of you know dud RPGs, and there are dust hits to make it look like rifles are being fired. There's a um, a bunch of there were well two uh, in this case the day I was there amputee actors who have uh, a latex gore sleeve pulled over their stump that is attached uh, to a backpack with stage blood that is pumped realistically there's a remote control to to uh, control how quickly the, the blood is coming out according to whether the trainee is applying the tourniquet properly. There's a soundtrack blaring of people screaming and bullets whizzing. Uh, in fact, I learned later it's from the beach scene in uh, Saving Private Ryan. So it's pretty intense. Plus, the instructors are yelling at you and calling you names in that Marine Corps tradition. So all of that combines to uh, create a, a, as stressful a scenario as you can create without actually shooting weapons at someone. The idea of being I can safely say that's not even a movie that I would want to go to, let alone <laughs> something I would want to participate in. Yeah, I was participating just so I could get close enough to the action to be able to see what was going on. I took the role of the annoying reporter who gets in the way, which was easy for me because I spend my life doing that. I was typecast. <laughs> and you mentioned there were a couple of actors 
did you get to talk to them? Did they talk about why they why they did this? Uh, yeah, there were they they were amputees. Neither of them had lost a limb in combat. They uh, uh, one was a motorcycle accident. The other, I can't remember what happened to the other one. Um, they did it because they believed in the project, but also they're paid and they enjoy it. And you know, it's a it's a part time gig. Kind of like, uh, um, and I don't, they, you know, they're not, I don't think that they were doing a ton of acting besides that, but, uh, they were, um, and the, the one guy, Cesar Garcia, I think his name was, uh, he was really good. I mean, he, not only was he there bleeding and screaming, but he would grab, you know, grab the Navy corpsman by the shirt and be like, you know, yelling, like looking right into his eyes and going, help me. I mean, just so convincing and so good. Some of the other actors were, you know, they were, they were just kind of hired for the day and they're kind of lying there kind of pretending to wheeze and breathe. They're not, you know, they weren't, they were okay. But I mean, he was, if he was so good, he was, I mean, I, um, I knew that it was all an act and all fake. But if I'd been ushered into that, um, that building for the first time and seen him, I'd be pretty, a little freaked out. And the medics uh, train with fake blood, but then they move to the real world and real world smells. And obviously fake blood doesn't necessarily smell. You had a fantastic section on smells. And I was wondering if you could talk to me about why exactly the military decided to create the world's most offensive odor. (laughs) Uh, there have been a few uh, a few military projects that have dealt with offensive odors. The most recent one is something called stench soup, and that uh, it's a malodorant, a non lethal weapon that is used to clear a room or a compound. Or in Vietnam, they used them in Viet Cong tunnels or to disperse a mob. It is a smell so vile and potent that you just want to run away. It, it, it is, it, it's not painful, but it's just, you, you need to get out of there. And, uh, I was at the Monell Chemical Senses Center where they developed stench soup. And I talked to the, the researcher and she's like, this is not as straightforward as you would think because what they wanted was stench soup. They wanted something that was universally loathed, despised, and frightening. They wanted something they could use in any, in any culture, in any cu- country. And, so she did this interesting research. She traveled around with these vials in her carry-on baggage that were labeled sewage, burnt hair, vomit, U.S. government standard bathroom malodor. And she took them around in different countries and she had people smell them and say whether they found them pleasant or unpleasant, wearable, edible, frightening, you know, apply adjectives. And depending on where you were and what group you were dealing with, there'd be a percentage of people, for example, the smell of vomit, 3% of Caucasians will say, yeah, that's wearable. Yeah, I'd wear that as a scent. You know, the, the, or, or this, and sewage, uh, 20% of most groups were like, yeah, that's an edible smell. So out of context, not knowing what it is, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to find the ones that are just universally stinky and god awful. The one that won, was U.S. government standard bathroom malodor, and that's a compound that was developed in World War II, I believe it was for uh, it was for testing latrine deodorants, deodorizers. So they needed a standardized, horrible latrine smell that they would then test the deodorizers on to see if they helped. 
So they came up with it, this, yeah, really, you know, just to, to mimic a, a field latrine that's been sitting in the sun used by hundreds of people. And it's a pretty potent, awful smell. And all around the world, people think it's horrible, unpleasant. They wouldn't wear it as a scent. They wanted to get away from it. So that's the starting point. And then they added, because, you know, the Monell Chemical Senses people, they're all about stink and smell and taste. And they, that's, that's their thing. They are uh, also overachievers. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they added, this is the, the diabolical part. They added a fruity, pleasant top note so that when you, if, if, if there's a smell that you first, when you first encounter a smell, you're, you're tentative. You take a little sniff. And so if that's encouraging, if that's pleasant, then you do what's called the keeper inhale. And that's where you take a deeper whiff. And then the, the horrible U.S. government standard bathroom malodor horrible thing hits you. And that's when you vacate the premises. So there, uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, interesting design and uh, thought that goes into creating a malodorant. I am now desperately wondering whether the 3% of the Caucasian population that actually enjoyed the smell of vomit actually overlaps with those that enjoy the smell of Axe body spray. I, oh, I'd rather smell vomit. I really would. <laughs> but what if those groups overlap? You, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. It, it, here's the thing with vomit. Uh, there's something with vomit. Yeah, butyric acid is the, the bad, the, the, the compound that that is that you're smelling, and that is if you that's the same butyric acid. You will get that same smell uh, from Parmesan cheese. If you take a brick of Parmesan, a slice, a wedge, whatever, put your put it right up to your face and sniff it. It's 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 very similar to to vomit. So uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's that that may be that may be why people have sort of a Thank you, Mary. Thank uh, you yeah, for okay, ruining sorry. my dinner. That was that was great. <laughs> so, so grate it on your food. Just don't sniff it too closely. And did you ever talk to the scientists about, you know, they, they put in a lot of effort into these terrible smells, but they also actually create latrine deodorizers. Um, and have they created these and are they really effective? And where can you buy one? Good question. I don't Asking know. Asking for a friend. <laughs> I don't know what they, I don't know what they came up with. Um, I, I asked, um, I asked Pam Dalton, who did the work with the, you know, the te- cultural testing. Uh, I asked her what, just like, well, what did the military do with stench soup? She said, you know, I give, I give them, we give them the recipe and what they do with it, we never really hear. So, uh, and that the people who, who had, who, who created U.S. government standard bathroom malodor, this is a, I think it's Ferminich, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but it's a, a fragr, a flavor and fragrance company. And they have a library of bad smells. And I wanted to know what else was in it. I wanted to, I had a lot of questions for them and they, they're very squirrely. They're like, I, I'm the guy that I wrote to, I, who Pam Dalton knows, uh, he wrote back and said, you know, I'd love to talk to you, but I was told by our public relations people that I was not to speak with you. So it was easier to speak to the military than it was the fragrance. The fragrance industry is very secretive. I was wondering, it seems, um, it, it, it's of course nice for, I suppose, uh, intelligence to be able to quickly clear a room with a terrible smell. But have any uh, military scientists actually say, 
done work on the best deodorant for sweaty soldiers. I feel like that's uh, something that would be in pretty high demand in, in the military and actually in civilian life, again, asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to meet this friend and have dinner with this friend. <laughs> hey, no. um, I do know that they there are uh, treatments for fabrics, for shirts, antimicrobial stink-proofing treatments. So r- rather than a deodorant that you would put on, it's built right into the clothing. And, and I, I know that those technologies are also available in um, socks and t-shirts that you can buy for, for athletic endeavors or camping. There's a, the, the um, space program. I, had, I remember when I was reporting Packing for Mars, there was uh, a stink-proof antimicrobial anti-odor underwear, I think it was called J-Wear, W-A-R-E, and that meant that you, the astronauts could bring just two pairs of underwear, and they would, you would wear them for a week, and they wouldn't be gross. So I thought that was, that was an interesting development. That was something I never needed to know about space. Yeah, I know, yeah, there, yeah, I, somewhere in that, in that book, I have, yeah, the number of changes of underwear most astronauts bring. <laughs> they're wearing them. They're wearing them for three days or more. And if they have the J wear, they get yeah, well. Heck, we'll leave them on for a week. So, we're, as we're talking about the nether regions, you have an entire delightful chapter on diarrhea. It flowed. What can I say? <laughs> well, thank you so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> diarrhea is, of course, kind of a punchline all on its own, but it's actually a very serious issue for the military. Uh, why? Why is that such a problem? Well, historically, it was a problem because it killed way more people than bullets or bombs. Uh, in, for example, Mexican-American War, there were seven deaths from dysentery, diarrhea. Um, I think they may also have had malaria in their category, but mostly dysentery. Seven deaths to one death from bullets, so the uh, from combat. So uh, huge, huge problem uh, because. The camps, you, you camp in a field in a hot place. Uh, there's a latrine, open pit latrine. So flies are landing there and then they're a mechanical vector and that they, you know, they walk around, they pick up pathogens on their feet. Then they go over to the mess tent, which isn't screened, which isn't refrigerated. The food isn't refrigerated. They land on the beans, sits in the sun for a few hours. And now everybody who eats three hours later comes down with dysentery, typhoid fever, you name it. There were, there were, food poisoning was a huge problem. Nowadays, the because of air conditioning, you can seal a mess hall so no flies get in. You don't have any windows that you need to open. There's no way for the flies to come from wherever they've been walking around on feces or bodies or whatever they've chosen to be walking around on. They're not going to fly in, land on the food. and uh, you're not gonna, So food poisoning on big bases is practically non-existent unless the soldiers are going off to eat in town, which they often do. But it's a problem now with special operations teams because they are um, out in small villages. They're they're not on base. They're carrying out operations that bring them into villages, say in Somalia or Yemen or wherever they are, and they're eating goat with the village elders and they're drinking water that isn't safe, that isn't filtered or treated and they get sick at a rate twice the average person who was deployed in in Iraq and that 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 person you know the average person I mean the, the rates of diarrhea were something like 77% came down 
the diarrhea, even and that's with food on base that is safe. They just, because they were going out of the community, going out to town and eating in restaurants, they were getting, uh, they were getting diarrhea. So anyway, the special operations guys, uh, and they're the ones doing the, you know, go in and kill Osama bin Laden, you know, so you get hit with extreme urgency as you're going in. We, you, you're in kind of a pickle that, so, you know, it's sort of a national security issue. So I, uh, made a point of, of interviewing some of these guys in Djibouti, which is a, there's a Camp Lemonier is in, uh, Djibouti is near Somalia and Yemen. It's, it's in North Africa. It's a place where a lot of these Navy SEALs and other special operations teams go out of. So they, uh, they, they get hit quite a bit there. So, Diarrhea is not a laughing matter to those guys. And actually, in this chapter, I found another one of those glorious little tidbits that make probably you and me such amazing delights at cocktail parties. Um, there's those curtains, those beaded curtains yeah. that were so popular when, you know, I was in, in high school. And uh, those are actually an anti-fly thing. Yeah. I had no idea. Fly curtain. It's a fly curtain. It, it lets the breeze go through, but it does, but it keeps flies out. And I, I thought it was just a thing everybody had in the seventies is beat those beaded curtains. Uh, and, uh, all of a sudden I was reading about fly curtains. I'm like, what are they talking about? Oh, oh, those things that people had in their dorm rooms in the seventies. Yeah. Those were originally for flies. And when you talked about flies, I, I always assumed that flies spread disease just by walking on things. But in fact, the, the flies feeding mechanism is even more delightful. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they do, but they do spread it by walking, but they also, the fly, because it doesn't have teeth, it, it uh, digests food partially outside the body. So it, it regurgitates onto food and then kind of sucks it up. <laughs> and while it's doing that, it's also defecating uh, to make room for the new stuff, you know, out with the old and with the new. So and there, there are people, scientists, God love them, who have counted, could tell you the average number of fecal spots and vomit spots in a 24-hour period based on one standardized milk meal. I think it was something like 16 to 21. Uh, anyway, and they can tell you which is darker, the fecal spot or the vomit spot. You can, you, you can be like you know, a magnifying glass. You could see these on the food. Uh, so, I mean, uh, no, you don't necessarily want to do that. But um, these are all reasons to keep the fly away from the food. These are also reasons that I personally love scientists. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> You're listening to Science for the People. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and I'm here with Mary Roach, whose latest book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, goes into the weird and wonderful of the military realm. Now, Mary, most authors never manage to fit quite everything into their books. 
Was there anything in particular that you did report but that didn't make it in? There was something that I wanted to put in about it was from the in the shark repellent chapter, and it was sort of too far afield. It was called uh, Project Headgear, and it had to do with these this. Uh, project w- whereby you would put an explosive on a shark and a headgear that you could uh, enable you to remotely steer the shark to whatever you wanted to blow up, uh, which was uh, just a bizarre uh, a- a project that went on for quite some time. So I may I may actually write that up for uh, Undark, which is a the uh, the uh, publication out of the yes. Night Science Journal. Night Science Journal, at exactly MIT. at MIT. Thank you. Yeah. So, so um, the yeah project headgear I wanted to fit in, but it uh, was classified, and I managed to get it declassified. Wow. I know that's There's very Bond villain esque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a mandatory declassification review, uh, which worked. They're like, uh, yeah, that's fine. We don't care about Project Headgear. Nobody's going to use that these and you days. you learned about some really amazing products that the military has come up with, including uh, extra strength one-ply toilet paper and caffeine in everything. Um, yeah. Is there any particular product that you reported on that you have decided we all need in our day-to-day lives? I would love to have a set of TCAPs. It's the Tactical Communication and Protection System. This is a, uh, ear, you know, big muffs that you put over your ear, like you'd see somebody on a tarmac with. They're, they're hearing protection, but they, they, so they, but they, they dampen loud noises and they amplify quiet ones. I want a pair for the restaurants that you go to that are so loud that you can't hear the person across the table. <laughs> I need, I need a set. Of tea caps, just so I can ha- have a casual conversation. With, and there's a, there's also a mouthpiece, so you can communicate wirelessly. So I want to have those to, you know, have. Of course, I'll have to outfit my uh, conversation partner as well. But then, you know, it would it would quiet the din of the incredibly loud restaurant and enable you to just talk uh, without screaming. So I, I, that's what I want. I, I want one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything that you? learned during your research for the book that affected you very strongly? Uh, you know, the, what what affected me strongly, I guess, was um, not so much something I learned, but just having conversations face to face with people who had been in scenarios I can't even conceive of, because I don't have military experience. I don't know anyone who ever went through, you know, having an ID go off right near them or losing somebody or, you know, that's, it's intense stuff that I only see or only had seen in films or read about. And it's just different sitting down with someone and and talking to them about it. So that was different. And did you have ideas or thoughts about war before you went in that that changed? I was not a fan of war going into this project, and I'd say I'm significantly less of a fan now. And what kind of opinions did you hear from the military scientists um, that you you interviewed? You know, these people who are working on, you know, non-lethal weapons, right. but also lethal weapons. Well, I didn't. I didn't speak to anybody who's working on lethal weapons. Uh, I mostly spoke to people who are trying to make the experience of military 
less god awful, the experience of military combat or deployment. So, uh, the people who put people back together, the people who try to keep them from collapsing in the first place. And those people, because they see firsthand what war does, not, not just bullets and bombs, but say somebody who's in an armored personnel carrier that drives over an IED and flips over three times. The people who know precisely what happens to the body in that scenario or the brain and uh, the, that, that, those people are, are not fans of war, I believe me. So, you know, there's, the book is, is, is both pro-military and anti-war at the same time, in a way. What kind of ideas do you hope that people will take away from this book? Uh, I just, just, uh, like, just to, to, to realize that, that this work is done and, and to, gain a little appreciation f- for it because I think the, the this realm of military science gets so little coverage there's so much you know discovery channel reporting or you know wired.com or wherever reporting on gadgetry and, and drones and and lasers and weapons and strategy and all of that gets a lot of sort of gee whiz coverage and there isn't much you know who writes about the military entomologist who would like to try to use maggots to encourage healing in certain ID caused injuries where there, there's recurring infection. You know, that doesn't, the, the kind of that, that sort of quiet work behind the scenes just doesn't, it doesn't get a lot of attention. And so, you know, for people to gain a little appreciation for it would be great. Well, Mary, I can tell you, I gained a lot of appreciation for mad- maggot debridement, um, <laughs> amongst other topics. Thank you so much for bringing the weird and the wonderful parts of science to those of us at home. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, th- thank you. It was so much fun to talk with you and um, share this with your listeners. If you'd like to learn more about Mary Roach and her new book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, we've linked to her site and information about the book at scienceforthepeople.ca. There, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You can also find our Patreon page, where you can support our hardworking podcast crew with a monthly donation. And... For those of you down in Atlanta, Georgia, I wanted to include a short note. I'll be heading down for Dragon Con over Labor Day weekend. The con is massive, with more than 60,000 people as of 2014. There are panels on every aspect of geekdom, from the shows we obsessively watch to the books and games that fill our lives with happiness. I'll be there as part of the science track. There's plenty of science and sci-fi, and I'll be joining other scientists and science communicators to talk about real science and fantasy novels, Star Wars science, the biggest scientific findings of the year, and even about hacking the vagina. So if you're in the area, come check it out and say hi, and if you're not, keep an ear out for some Dragon Con-inspired podcasts over the next few months. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. 
Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.